Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to actually go to verse 14. So beginning there, it says, So when he would not be persuaded, and this is speaking of Paul, uh, you know, Paul was going to Jerusalem. He, the Lord had laid it on his heart. Um, the Lord also said that, you know, through the Holy Spirit, that chains and tribulations were awaiting him. Uh, other prophets, Agabus being one, uh, said the same thing. Hey, the, the guy who's wearing this belt, and he kind of gave him a verbal picture, he's going he's gonna to suffer uh, in, in Jerusalem. And so all the people, everywhere Paul went, they're like, Paul, don't go. Don't go. And uh, Paul's like, no, I'm, I'm going. And at the end of there, verse 14, it says, So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And this is Luke speaking. Luke is the author of the book of, of, uh, of Acts. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went to Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem. So that's interesting. So they, they disagreed with Paul. They heard the prophecies, and they interpreted the prophecies as Paul, God saying, don't go. Paul heard the same prophecies, and it was just, for him, it was just like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I may lay down my life, but that's okay, I'm going anyways. And so for Paul, it wasn't a don't go, but for the others, it wasn't. They interpreted that word of the Lord as don't go. And so they disagreed with Paul, but it's interesting, they got to a point where they finally ceased says, we, when, when we realized he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased. Man, I love that. I love that. Um, they disagreed with Paul, but they stopped trying to persuade him. Sometimes that can be pretty hard to do if you're feeling really strongly about something. Well, they disagreed, but they ceased. They stopped trying, and then they surrendered the outcome to the Lord. They said, man, the will of the Lord be done. And, you know, you might have a situation like that where you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in the Lord and you go, man, I don't think that's what the Lord is saying. And they're like, no, that's what the Lord is saying and I'm going to go that direction. And a lot of times, you know what the temptation is? Fine, have fun. Let me know how it works out in the end. They didn't do that. They accompanied Paul. They said the will of the Lord be done and then they accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. You see, what they did was they maintained the unity of the Spirit despite their differences of opinion. And that's such an important thing. This wasn't a sin issue. Paul wasn't sinning against the Lord. You know, that'd be a different situation. Then, then there's, a, there's different dynamics that come into it. This is just a difference on the view of what God was saying. How do you interpret it? And so what I like what James wrote in James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Willing to yield. That's a, that's a hard thing sometimes to do. And so we go to verse 16, and this is kind of where we're picking up the story. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us and brought with them a certain nason, uh, a Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. This is the only place that this gentleman by the name of, I don't want to say Manason, but it's, I'm sure it's Nason or something. I'm guessing the M is silent. Uh, that this gentleman, this is the only verse that he's mentioned in the Bible. So it's kind of hard to find out a whole lot more about him other than what the scripture says here. And it says, first of all, that he was an early disciple. 
Well, his name is a Greek name, so he's probably a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. He might be an early disciple. He might have been part of the 120. Remember that, that after Jesus ascended to the heaven, there was 120 saints, and they met in the upper room and were praying before Pentecost? He could have been part of that group. He might have been part of the 3,000 men that were converted at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. He may have been converted by Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. Maybe Barnabas shared the gospel with, with uh, Mason and, and he accepted Christ. Or he could have been converted by other evangelistic, uh, Hellenistic Jewish Christians because there was a group of them that went up to, uh, to that region to share the gospel. So we, that's all we know. He's an early disciple. But the other thing we see here is that he practiced hospitality. He opened up his home to Paul and his companions to stay with them. And, you know, I, I'm like, when I'm reading this verse, it's like, well, okay, we don't know. Luke doesn't go into detail other than telling us he was an early disciple. Um, so we don't know a whole lot about him. It's like, well, why would you even put it in the scriptures? I mean, it's like, it's like, it's almost like it's just a, oh, by the way, there's this guy that let him stay at their house. What I think is it's really cool about this is that he's recorded in scripture, and I think it's based on his hospitality. The reason why I say that is Jesus said in Mark 9, verse 41, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Man, practicing hospitality, we all should practice hospitality. Hebrews 6.10 writes, says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work, and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Those things, those little things like just ministering, opening up your heart and your home to somebody, God sees those things, and you will be rewarded for them. And so that's kind of why I think it's listed there. That's why he's mentioned. Verse 17, And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. They received him gladly. You know that word gladly, uh, gladly received, because it depends on what translation you're looking at. It's only used this place and one other place in the New Testament. I thought that was kind of interesting. The other place where it's used is in Acts 2, verse 41. Speaking about uh, the, the disciples, all those 3,000 people that got saved, in Acts 2, verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Can you imagine putting yourself in that situation? You know, you, you realize that you need a Savior, um, and, and here's someone sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with you, and you're hearing that. You know, you'd receive that with joy, wouldn't you? It'd be like, man, tell me more. I want to hear more. That's the same word that's used here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Can, can you sense the joy, the excitement? Oh, man, Paul, you, man, come on in. We love what you're saying. Tell us, you know, talk to us and stuff. So they received them with joy. And then verse 18, it says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So James here, there's a few James in the Bible. This happens to be James, who's the brother of the Lord, or I should say the half-brother of the Lord. 
Same mother, different fathers. Um, but so this is the James. And you, so, you know, if you go back into the history in the book of Acts, the apostles all were scattered and they went different places. James, the brother of the Lord, stayed back in Jerusalem and he became basically kind of like the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He was the main, the main guy, the big, the, the honcho. <laughs> but he's the leader there. Um, and so Paul meets with James and the other elders of the church in Jerusalem. And it says he told in detail, and that word literally means he rehearsed one by one. So I don't know how long that would have taken, but Paul is sitting here from day one of his ministry to the Gentiles, this has happened. And he just, he just basically gave them a, just a complete list of all the things that the Lord had done. And you know, Paul did that voluntarily. It wasn't like they were expecting Paul. Paul, you come here and report to us, tell us what's going on. No, Paul did that voluntarily. You know, it's interesting. When Paul got saved, he describes it in Galatians 1.17. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul didn't put these guys on a pedestal. He, you know, he, he went to the Lord, basically, and the Lord ministered to him out in Damascus or in Arabia for many, many years. What I'm saying by that is that Paul wasn't required to go and give this accounting, but Paul voluntarily submitted himself to the elders there in Jerusalem. It kind of gives you an idea of who Paul was. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was, you know, probably, well, I wouldn't say he was the greatest apostle, but he definitely a big guy, right? I mean, a main guy, and yet he submitted himself to the other uh, elders of the church there. And so what did he do? What did he do? He told in detail the things which God had done through his ministry. I love that. He gave all the glory to God. This is what God did through my ministry. <laughs> you know? Rather than this is what I did, God helped me. You know, there's a big difference there. He wasn't boasting. He was telling the things that God had done through his ministry. And then verse 20 it says, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. When you read that, there's a couple there's one thing that I can I can glean from that. First of all, they weren't uh, jealous of Paul. They weren't uh, prideful. You know, they weren't upset that that Paul had reached so many Gentiles and here they're stuck in Jerusalem. There was no competition. James and the elders were truly joyful. And you go, well, how do you know that? Just reading that from that verse. The reason why is because they glorified the Lord. They glorified the Lord. You know, if you're jealous of someone and someone shares something that the Lord did, and, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, praise God, I'm so, man, praise God. We might say that like, oh, praise God, you know. You know, we might do that. But if you're truly joyful, it's like, man, I'm, I'm so happy for you that the Lord's blessed you. That's if you're not jealous. If you are jealous, it's like, well, yeah, why didn't I get that? You know, why didn't God do that for me? So I think they were truly joyful how can you know if you're harboring jealousy, pride, or competition? Well, when the Lord blesses someone with success, somebody that you know, or they receive recognition that maybe you think, you know, hey, it would have been cool if I had got it, but no, they got recognized. Or they receive some sort of material blessing. The Lord just blesses them some way financially or physically or materially or something. If you can say, praise God, I am so glad for you, that's a good way to know if you're not harboring jealousy. If you're like, If you're struggling with it, you might need to check your heart. Just saying. So what did they do? Verse 20, going back to verse 20. And they said to him, 
And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. So there were myriads of Jews. I don't know how many a myriad is. I'm guessing lots of people. There were many Jews who have believed, so they're Christians, but they were also identified as being zealous for the law, the law of Moses. Like what Bruce Barton wrote. Kind of gives us a little bit of a background. He says, everything was not going smoothly in the church at Jerusalem, however. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus described this time period, which was approximately 56 or 57 AD, as being filled with political unrest and strong Jewish nationalism. There were several uprisings by Jews against their Roman leaders, all of which had been brutally put down by Felix, the Roman procurator. This caused even more anger from the Jews and intensified their hatred for Gentiles. Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, entered the city with news of vast Gentile conversions. So there's some people that weren't too, too thrilled about it. The Jews who believed, who were zealous for the law, you know, we were told in Acts that there was uh, quite a few priests that came to faith in the Lord between that time, you know, after Pentecost and the time we're talking now, which is approximately about 20 years later. Uh, also probably Pharisees and scribes. So these people that, like Paul, were raised in, you know, the, the traditions and they were, they were, you know, very zealous for the traditions and now they're saved. And, you know, you look at Paul, and Paul said, man, all of that stuff, it's like nothing for me to gain Christ, you know. But not everybody had that same opinion. There were people that stuck to their legalism there. So as they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. It says they have been informed. Now that's the New King James Version. They've been informed. The word is catechale. Have, you ever, have anyone here been to catechism? It's where that word comes from. Catechism is where they, they basically are instructing you in the doctrines of the church, basically. Um, I didn't grow up Catholic, but the church that I attended, they had catechism. I went to a catechism when I was a kid. I still remember that. The word cate, catechale, it comes from two words. First, the word is down, and the other is echo. And what it really means is it echoed down. It, it, it was reverberated. And so here these people are sharing these things. They're, they're, they're spreading rumors, basically. They're gossiping about Paul, and they're wrong. What were the rumors? Paul was teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. Paul was teaching the Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul was teaching the Jews not to walk according to the customs of Judaism. Well, the truth is, Paul never told anyone to forsake Moses. And we're not talking about Moses the man, but when they talk about forsaking Moses, that's the law. It's referring to the law. Paul wasn't saying you need to forsake the law. He never said that. Paul did teach that Jews and Gentiles alike can't be saved by the law of Moses. You can't be saved by the law. The law was just a tutor to bring people to Christ. That's what Paul taught. That's the reality of what Paul taught. The other rumor, 
Paul never told Jews not to circumcise their children. In fact, and we read about it earlier, Paul had Timothy, sac uh, not sacrifice, Paul and Timothy circumcised. It probably felt like a sacrifice for Timothy, but <laughs> Paul had Timothy circumcised. You know, his mother was Jewish, his father was Gentile or Greek, and so, you know, as they start ministering, they're like, you know, you're, you're not, you'll be able to minister to the Gentiles, but the Jews aren't going to receive you because you're not circumcised. And so Paul said, you better get circumcised. That way you won't be a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. So that rumor, that accusation was not true. Paul did teach that circumcision can't save anybody and that God was looking at the circumcision of the heart. And you know what's the interesting thing about that? God even said that in the Old Testament when he gave the, when he gave the laws concerning circumcision. He said that circumcise your hearts. That, that, was the whole, that was God's purpose. He never taught the Jewish believers not to circumcise their children. Regarding the customs of Judaism, like, for example, observing the Sabbath or eating meat sacrificed to idols or anything like that, listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thank God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and he gives God thanks. So, you know, if they had just read Paul's letter to the Romans or Paul's letter to the Galatians, a lot of those rumors would have been dispelled. The rumors were completely false. They were meant to discredit Paul's ministry. Warren Wiersbe said this, It has well been said that though a rumor doesn't have a leg to stand on, it travels mighty fast. And that's so true. You know, it's interesting. I'll just share this with you. I, I uh, oh, I don't know. I guess it was probably maybe, maybe a month ago or so. I got a phone call from a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor here in Minnesota, brother of the Lord. And he called me and he said, hey, can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, uh, there was somebody who attended our church and uh, they're... I didn't remember if you said it was friends or related to, or, or maybe they were from this church here. And uh, he said, uh, they said that you told people, don't go to the Jesus Revolution movie. I said, really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that, you know. And uh, we talked for a while and stuff. It's interesting. It's like, where did that come from? But somebody, somebody said that. So this guy's like, that just doesn't seem like you. And so he called me. I said, no, it's not me. <laughs> I didn't. Anyways, it's interesting how rumors can spread. Now, it would appear, as you're reading this, it would appear that James and the elders didn't believe the rumors. But many of the believers that were zealous for the law in Jerusalem did. It kind of it tickled their ears, in a sense. So here's their solution, the elders and James, verse 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. 
But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering be made for each one of them. So these guys, the elders and James, they have this, they have this idea. we got these guys that are, there's four guys, maybe they couldn't afford to pay for their own haircut or whatever. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to, uh, they're fulfilling their, their Nazarite vow, which is what we believe it is, a Nazarite vow. And uh, so why don't you put to rest the rumors by paying for it, showing that you still observe the, the, the laws, basically, or the customs. And they're hoping that that would put to rest the rumors. I mentioned that that vow, which, I mean, it doesn't say it, but it seems to be the vow of a Nazarite. And that is listed uh, in Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to go to that, but if you ever want to find out about that. By the way, a man or a woman could take the vow of the, of the Nazarite. What it was it? It was to separate yourself to the Lord. And part of that vow would be that you would eat or drink nothing from the fruit of the vine. So no wine. Uh, no raisins. You couldn't cook with grapeseed oil. Uh, you know, vinegar back in those days, I guess, was made from grapes, so you couldn't have vinegar. No jams or jelly. Craisins are okay, I guess, but they didn't. There was no that weird craisins. Where'd that come from? Anyways, um, so you didn't eat anything from the fruit of the vine. Uh, you also didn't shave or cut your hair during the vow. And then you also stayed away. You weren't defiled by a dead body. So if, like, somebody died in your house, you, you know, that would probably mess up your vow, I guess. Uh, mess up your day, too, anyways. <laughs> well, at the end of the vow, then you would go to the temple. You would offer sacrifices. You'd cut your hair, and your hair would be offered on the altar to the Lord. And the Nazarite vow, it was a voluntary thing. It would be taken either to show thankfulness for past blessings or you're just wanting to tell the, show the Lord how much you're devoting yourself to him. It was just something that wasn't required, but if you wanted to do this, this is how you do it. It was completely voluntary, with the exception of Samson. Samson was raised to be a Nazarite, if you remember that story. Anyways. And so they say, take these four guys and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, that, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So Paul had been spending time with the Gentiles, being up, in, you know, up uh, away from Jerusalem. And so for Paul to enter the temple, he would also have to ceremonially be cleansed himself after having spent time with, among the Gentiles, which he did. And at the end of the seven days, Paul paid for the expenses of the haircuts and for the expenses of the sacrifice. Now, this wasn't Paul's idea. Paul didn't say, well, here, this is how we'll, this is how we'll, we'll solve it. This was the elders' ideas and James. It wasn't Paul's idea, but Paul consented. And you know, it's interesting, if you look at Paul's life and his writings, man, it just, it just, that's Paul. That's who Paul was. The Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet, listen to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. 
And to the Jews it became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. And then later on he says this, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. You know what we see in Paul's character? Grace. Lots of grace. Flexibility. And also love. That's what we see on Paul's part. That's what we see in his character. But what we see in those zealous believers, those ones that were still clinging to the law of Moses, it showed legalism, it showed judgmentalism, it showed inflexibility on their part. In fact, the writer to the letter is going to write, there's, one of the apostles is, writes this, I think it was Paul, but people can disagree. The letter to the Hebrews was written to the church in Jerusalem basically to show them that the legalism in Christ isn't going to benefit you in any way, that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and that all those things of the old covenant were just copies and shadows of things to come, of the, of the heavenly things, which are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Verse 27 now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke gives us a little commentary there in verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So apparently these accusers, you know, they were Judaizers, they were called. They would follow Paul around everywhere and trying to discredit him. And they were probably, they might have been from Ephesus because they recognized Trophimus. Say, hey, there's a Gentile. And so they made this false accusation against Paul. This would have been... The, the Judaizers, or it probably wasn't believers. It was probably these Jews that were following, trying to, trying to uh, discredit Paul. But the problem was, the believers who were zealous for the law, they were all too ready to accept the false accusation as truth. Because why? Because they had already entertained the rumors. Verse 21, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Allison Trites and William Larkin give us a little bit of a background. It says, this is not hyperbole. For Josephus consistently attests to the vol uh, volatility of the great crowds at the pilgrimage feasts, where a perceived slight against the ancestral customs could quickly generate a riot. That's just the way they were in that day and age, man. Anything that was a slight against Judaism, man, it caught, got them in an uproar. Josephus and others write that there was a wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the courts of the areas of the temple. And no Gentile, they could go into the court of the Gentiles, but man, they couldn't go beyond that wall. And on that wall, there was a sign, and it's quoted here, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You, you cross that, you get, you're in there, man, you're a Gentile, man, you're dead. And the thing is, the Romans allowed the Jews, within that, within that context, they allowed them to, to kill somebody. 
if they violated that, uh, that, that rule or that law. So here's this rumor. Paul has allowed this Gentile in beyond that room into the, into the man, the temple's defiled. And so they shut the doors so that nobody could go in there at that point because it had been supposedly defiled by Trophimus. Verse 21, excuse me, verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and they saw the and when they saw, this is the Jewish people, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. What a guy, man. Either you love him or you hate him, right? Paul, he'd go some places and there'd be many people coming to faith in Christ. He'd go to other places, there'd be many people that want to kill him. You know, there'd be a riot. Either it'd be a riot or a revival, wherever, wherever Paul went. That Antonio fortress or garrison housed at least a thousand soldiers. It doesn't mean that all thousand of them came down there, but it was right next to the temple, as you can kind of see on the on the picture up there. And so they basically just went down the steps into the temple from their garrison there. Verse 33. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people following after crying out, away with him. You know, you think about that. That doesn't sound familiar, right? They were saying the same thing to Jesus. Away with him, crucify him. Here now they're saying the same thing to Paul. Verse 37. Then Paul was about to be, uh, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Verse 39. But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, to be continued. <laughs> Don't you hate that? <laughs> Those shows, you know, you get all engrossed in the shows and then you get that little, that little thing, to be continued. Um, you know, think about Paul. And, and next week we will get into chapter 22, what Paul says. But think about Paul at this point. He's been told, don't go to Jerusalem. Chains and tribulation are awaiting you. He's been warned. People say, Paul, that means God doesn't want you to go. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm counting the cost and I'm going to go. Paul gets there, he's beaten severely. I mean, they want to kill him. He's finally chained, like the prophecy, it was, it was all true. Can you imagine what Paul's probably thinking at this point? This is why God has me here. I'm going to share the gospel with thousands of Jewish people that are trying to kill me. I'm going to share the gospel. This is what God has me here for. Man, lots of people are going to get saved today. I can't imagine that's what's going through Paul's head at that point. But that's not what happened, as we'll find out later on. Paul is probably hoping and expecting that, but that wasn't what happened. And when we get to chapter 23, 
Um, you know, Paul, I don't know if Paul felt like that was a failure or whatever happened. But in chapter 23, the Lord is going to stand by Paul and say this, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. But God, God had a plan in all of that, even in what happened to Paul that morning or that day. Now, I'm going to go back to these two people, Allison Trites and William Larkin. It's in a commentary. I forgot the name of the title, but I got their names anyways. But they write this, and I think this is significant. Here we have the last major spiritual and geographical turning point in Acts. Never again would Paul return to Jerusalem for worship or witness. By shutting out the messenger and the message of salvation, Paul's opponents had sealed the city's doom. In permitting its ethnic pride to, pre to prevent it from fulfilling its divinely intended mission as a light to the Gentiles. The Jews not only rejected their place in the true people of God, but robbed the temple of the universal glory God planned for it as a house of prayer for all nations. So spiritually, this was a turning point is regarding the church in Jerusalem anyways. You know, when I reflected on this chapter, at least the second part of this chapter, this is a sad commentary on the church of Jerusalem at that time. You know what's sad about it? Paul, wasn't, Paul was rescued by the Romans. He was going to be killed. He was rescued by the... His, where's his brothers and sisters in the Lord? None of them stood up for Paul. And Paul's rescued by the Gentiles who don't even believe in the Lord. It's sad also that there was a division in the church between, remember the brethren who received Paul and his companions with joy? Man, they're so glad. The other ones, they were suspicious of Paul. They eyed Paul with suspicion based on the rumors that they had heard. It's also sad to me that rather than shut down the rumors outright, James and the elders just tried to pacify those who were believing the rumors. I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to read too much into this, but why didn't they, when they heard those, why didn't they shut it down? They didn't. The reason why I say this is a sad commentary on the church in Jerusalem, I want to read a little bit to you from earlier in the book of Acts about the church in Jerusalem. About 20 years earlier, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Does that sound like the same church? It doesn't to me. Later on, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Man, this was a powerful church. This was a church that even the Gentiles were like, man, there's something, there's something special about these guys. That doesn't sound like the same church that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 21. And so I had to ask myself, what happened? What happened over the years? Well, we do know that the church of Jerusalem endured persecution. When Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, was stoned, right after that, in fact, Saul of Tarsus, who would later, later become Paul the Apostle, was zealously trying to 
eradicate people of the way. That's what the church was called. People were, Christians were called at that time. And so there was persecution, but you know, throughout history, from what I've ever read, persecution typically strengthens and unites the body of Christ. You know, if we get some people out here protesting Calvary Chapel, Rochester, and it could happen someday soon, you never know, or the government says you guys can't meet anymore, or, you know, or you've got people throwing rocks at the church because, you know, they hate what we're saying, you know, we're hate mongers or whatever, whatever, you know, that kind of persecution. You know what I think would happen? I think we'd all band together. I mean, we'd be praying for one another. We'd be like, man, you know, it, it would unite us. And I think it would strengthen us in our resolve, in our faith. So I don't think that's the reason. We also know that there was famine and resulting poverty among the church of Jerusalem, but that, to me that doesn't make sense either. That would be why the church changed so much. What happened? You know, we're not told, but I do think there's some clues in what we just read in chapter 21. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned there's poverty. There was a famine that was prophesied by Agabus. He was the guy we were introduced to last, last week. And it actually happened in the days, and there was a, a certain time when it happened. So there was a famine that happened in Jerusalem. So everybody in Jerusalem suffered through this famine. But you see, the Christians were persecuted against. And so for them, it was that much more worse. You know, because if you were a Jewish person in that day and age, uh, and you were, you know, you were in good standing with the Pharisees, you know, you didn't, you didn't follow that Jesus stuff. Um, you could do trade and everything. You, you could, you, you were, you were accepted into the society. But if you were a member of the way, well, you couldn't go to synagogue anymore, right? You, you couldn't go to the temple anymore. You, there's just all these things that they would require of people, and uh, and so there was poverty. In Romans chapter 15, Paul wrote that letter, and he's talking about what's going to take place here in Jerusalem, what he was doing. Let me read this to you, Romans 15. It says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So Paul actually had a contribution for the church in Jerusalem when he came to Jerusalem, the one we just read. You don't read anywhere where there's like, thank you, Paul. Man, thanks for the gift, man. Tell those saints up in you know, Antioch and all these, man, tell them thank you. What a blessing. You, you don't read of that. And that makes me wonder, I wonder if they were even grateful for the financial gift. So I think one of the problems might have been unthankfulness. Maybe they even had a sense of entitlement. You know, that comes from pride within us, right? I deserve something. So I'm entitled to this. What should we be doing? Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. You know, and it's, it's cliche, but we should have an attitude of gratitude in everything. What else could possibly be the problem? Well, I think they had loss of focus. 
You see, there were many believers who were zealous for the law. And today, there are many believers, I'm talking born-again believers, who are zealous for all kinds of things. They might be zealous for legalism. They might be zealous for Calvinism or Arminianism or any of those isms. Wokeism, they might, be, they might be zealous for that. They might be zealous for leisure. I mean, think about this, and this is just a rhetorical question. What are you zealous for? And I bet you if I were to ask each one of you here in this room, you'd say, well, I'm zealous for the Lord. And praise God, I'm glad you are. But you know what? And I'm, I'm not judging, but whatever you're focused on, first of all, you view everything through the lens of whatever your focus is. Second thing, you talk about it. And third, you spend all your time and efforts on whatever it is you're zealous for. It's reflected in what you do. They lost their zeal for Jesus. You know, we can be zealous. You know, we can be even be zealous for good things. The church in Ephesus, man, they were zealous people. They were zealous saints. And they were zealous for good things. They had works. Man, they had programs for the Lord. They were doing things. They were ministering in their community. They labored. They were hardworking people. They had patience. They had discernment. Man, they could tell false teachings from it. Man, that, that's a false teacher. You know, they, they had discernment. They had all these good things. They were persevering in difficult times. Those were all good things. But Jesus said this to them in Revelation 2.4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You see, we should be zealous for Jesus. If you want to be zealous for anything, be zealous for the Lord. And I think the church in Jerusalem lost that zeal. They were too focused on legalism, the law. Also, I think there was a judgmentalism or critical spirit there in the church in Jerusalem. Jesus said this, excuse me, Paul said this, Romans 14, 10. But why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Man, we, we can't be criticizing each other. We can't be judging each other. And I'm talking about not judging like, brother, you're, you know, I, I see you're walking in sin. I want to you know, pray for you or you know, I'm warning you or something. That's not that. Judging is condemning. is writing somebody off. That's what it's talking about. The church there, they were either spreading, or maybe they weren't spreading the rumors, or they were just listening to the rumors. And they were letting the rumors affect them. They were suspicious of Paul. Paul wrote this in Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. And then Paul also wrote this, in 1 Corinthians 13, and love thinks no evil, love believes all things. You might not be sp sp spreading rumors, but are you listening to them? Are you entertaining them? Because it'll affect how you view whoever's being rumored about or whatever, you know? And I think that was, in, that was obviously a, a situation there in the church in Jerusalem. You know, all of this boils down to, I think what Jesus said, well, self-centeredness, I, I'm behind again. <laughs> Love does not seek its own. 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, I got ahead of myself. Sorry about that. Self-centeredness. They were expecting people to bend to their own scruples rather than extending grace to those. 
And of course, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love does not seek its own. In fact, you see that in Paul. You know, Paul's like, yeah, I'll pay for their, I'll pay for the haircuts. I'll do all that stuff. That's fine. He was willing to bend. He was willing to extend grace. But the other believers were like, no, you need to do this. You know, I'm not saying the elders and, and James, but those believers that were, you know, they had that expectation that, and that judgment on, on Paul. It's like, no, you, you, you better obey those things. I think all of it boils down to this. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, you might have thought, you know, I think, Pastor Don, I think you're kind of, you're really reading into this chapter, and I, you know, I don't see that I'm reading that, and you know, that you're, you're entitled to that feeling, of, you know, whatever. But you got to admit, there's a difference between the Church of Jerusalem and the early part of Acts and what we're seeing today, what we read today. There's a difference. Something happened, and you know, sometimes I think about our own lives, our own church, our own, our own walk with the Lord. If you're thinking about, think back to when you first gave your heart to the Lord. What was it like? What, was your, what were you zealous about then? How did you view other Christians at that point? How did you view the word of God? How did, how did you interact in church? Man, were you so on fire for the Lord and for the things of the, you know, just, you just wanted to be involved in all that stuff? How are you today? Has anything changed in your life or in your walk? I think it's just a good reminder for us to reflect where are we at today and I think sometimes maybe we just need a course correction. And that course correction is to love the Lord God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our brothers as ourselves. And when we do that, I think then we'll have a powerful witness in this community when we love one another and when we're, when we're zealous for the Lord, for the things of the Lord. You know, the, I mean, you know, there's a lot of junk politically going on, and I, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more zealous about, you know, this is garbage what's happening. We need to do something. But I don't want that to become my focus. My focus is Jesus Christ. My focus is, yeah, I don't hate the people that are out here that are making all these dumb, not even dumb, evil laws and stuff. They're lost. They need a savior. And so, you know, let's, let's have that heart attitude. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Let's turn to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be picking up in verse, uh, well, I'm going to back up to verse 14, but we're just the second half of uh, chapter 21 tonight, or today, excuse me. Acts chapter 21, and uh, we're going to pick it up. I'm going to actually go to verse 14. So beginning there, it says, So when he would not be persuaded, and this is speaking of Paul, uh, you know, Paul was going to Jerusalem. He, the Lord had laid it on his heart. Um, the Lord also said that, you know, through the Holy Spirit, that chains and tribulations were awaiting him. Uh, other prophets, Agabus being one, uh, said the same thing. Hey, the, the guy who's wearing this belt, and he kind of gave him a verbal picture, he's going he's gonna to suffer uh, in, in Jerusalem. And so all the people, everywhere Paul went, they're like, Paul, don't go. Don't go. And uh, Paul's like, no, I'm, I'm going. And at the end of there, verse 14, it says, So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And this is Luke speaking. Luke is the author of the book of, of, uh, of Acts. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went to Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem. So that's interesting. So they, they disagreed with Paul. 
they heard the prophecies and they interpreted the prophecies as Paul, God saying, don't go. Paul heard the same prophecies and it was just for him, it was just like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I may lay down my life, but that's okay, I'm going anyways. And so for Paul, it wasn't a don't go, but for the others, it wasn't. They interpreted that word of the Lord as don't go. And so they disagreed with Paul, but it's interesting, they got to a point where they finally ceased. It says we, when, when we realized he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased. Man, I love that. I love that. Um, they disagreed with Paul, but they stopped trying to persuade him. Sometimes that can be pretty hard to do if you're feeling really strongly about something. Well, they disagreed, but they ceased. They stopped trying, and then they surrendered the outcome to the Lord. They said, man, the will of the Lord be done. And, you know, you might have a situation like that where you have a disagreement with a brother or sister in the Lord, and you go, man, I don't think that's what the Lord is saying. And they're like, no, that's what the Lord is saying, and I'm going to go that direction. And a lot of times, you know what the temptation is? Fine, have fun. Let me know how it works out in the end. They didn't do that. They accompanied Paul. They said, the will of the Lord be done, and then they accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. You see, what they did was they maintained the unity of the Spirit despite their differences of opinion. And that's such an important thing. This wasn't a sin issue. Paul wasn't sinning against the Lord. You know, that'd be a different situation. Then, then there's, a, there's different dynamics that come into it. This is just a difference on the view of what God was saying. How do you interpret it? And so what I like what James wrote in James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Willing to yield. That's a, that's a hard thing sometimes to do. And so we go to verse 16, and this is kind of where we're picking up the story. Also some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us and brought with them a certain nason, uh, a Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. This is the only place that this gentleman by the name of, I don't want to say nason, but it's, I'm sure it's nason or something. I'm guessing the M is silent. Uh, that this gentleman... This is the only verse that he's mentioned in the Bible. So it's kind of hard to find out a whole lot more about him other than what the scripture says here. And it says, first of all, that he was an early disciple. Well, his name is a Greek name, so he's probably a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. He might be an early disciple. He might have been part of the 120. Remember that, that after Jesus ascended to the heaven, there was 120 saints and they met in the upper room and were praying before Pentecost. He could have been part of that group. He might have been part of the 3,000 men that were converted at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. He may have been converted by Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyprus. Maybe Barnabas shared the gospel with, with uh, Nason and, and he accepted Christ. Or he could have been converted by other evangelistic, uh, Hellenistic Jewish Christians because there was a group of them that went up to uh, to that region to share the gospel. So we, that's all we know. He's an early disciple. But the other thing we see here is that he practiced hospitality. He opened up his home to Paul and his companions to stay with them. And, you know, I, I'm like, when I'm reading this verse, it's like, well, okay, we don't know. Luke doesn't go into detail other than telling us he was an early disciple. Um, so we don't know a whole lot about him. It's like, well, why would you even put it in the scriptures? I mean, it's like, it's like it's almost like it's just a, oh, by the way, there's this guy that let him stay at their house. 
what I think is, is really cool about this is that he's recorded in scripture and I think it's based on his hospitality. The reason why I say that is Jesus said in Mark 9 verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Man, practicing hospitality, we all should practice hospitality. Hebrews 6.10 writes, says this, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Those things, those little things like just ministering, opening up your heart and your home to somebody, God sees those things and you will be rewarded for them. And so that's kind of why I think it's listed there. That's why he's mentioned. Verse 17, and when he had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. They received him gladly. You know that word gladly, uh, gladly received, because it depends on what translation you're looking at. It's only used this place and one other place in the New Testament. I thought that was kind of interesting. The other place where it's used is in Acts 2 verse 41. Speaking about uh, the, the disciples, all those 3,000 people that got saved. In Acts 2 verse 41 it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Can you imagine putting yourself in that situation? You know, you, you, you realize that you need a Savior, um, and, and here's someone who's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with you, and you're hearing that. You know, you'd receive that with joy, wouldn't you? It'd be like, man, tell me more. I want to hear more. That's the same word that's used here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Can, can you sense the joy, the excitement? Oh, man, Paul, you, man, come on in. We love what you're saying. Tell us, you know, talk to us and stuff. So they received them with joy. And then verse 18, it says, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So James here, there's a few James in the Bible. This happens to be James, who's the brother of the Lord, or I should say the half-brother of the Lord. Same mother, different fathers. Um, but so this is the James. And you, so, you know, if you go back into the history in the book of Acts, the apostles all were scattered and they went different places. James, the brother of the Lord, stayed back in Jerusalem and he became basically kind of like the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He was the main, the main guy, the big, the, the honcho. <laughs> but he's the leader there. Um, and so Paul meets with James and the other elders of the church in Jerusalem. And it says he told in detail, and that word literally means he rehearsed one by one. So I don't know how long that would have taken, but Paul is sitting here from day one of his ministry to the Gentiles. This has happened, and he just, he just basically gave them a, just a complete list of all the things that the Lord had done. And you know, Paul did that voluntarily. It wasn't like they were expecting Paul. Paul, you come here and report to us, tell us what's going on. No, Paul did that voluntarily. You know, it's interesting. When Paul got saved, he describes it in Galatians 1.17. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Paul didn't put these guys on a pedestal. 
He, you know, he, he went to the Lord, basically, and the Lord ministered to him out in Damascus or in Arabia for many, many years. What I'm saying by that is that Paul wasn't required to go and give this accounting, but Paul voluntarily submitted himself to the elders there in Jerusalem. It kind of gives you an idea of who Paul was. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was, you know, probably, well, I wouldn't say he was the greatest apostle, but he's definitely a big guy, right? I mean, a main guy, and yet he submitted himself to the other uh, elders of the church there. And so what did he do? What did he do? He told in detail the things which God had done through his ministry. I love that. He gave all the glory to God. This is what God did through my ministry, <laughs> you know? Rather than, this is what I did, God help me. You know, it, there's a big difference there. He wasn't boasting. He was the, telling the things that God had done through his ministry. And then verse 20, it says, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. When you read that, there's, a couple, there's one thing that I can, I can glean from that. First of all, they weren't uh, jealous of Paul. They weren't uh, prideful. You know, they weren't upset that, that Paul had reached so many Gentiles and near they're stuck in Jerusalem. There was no competition. James and the elders were truly joyful. And you go, well, how do you know that? Just reading that from that verse. The reason why is because they glorified the Lord. They glorified the Lord. You know, if you're jealous of someone and someone shares something that the Lord did, and, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh, praise God, I'm so, man, praise God. We might say that like, oh, praise God, you know. You know, we might do that. But if you're truly joyful, it's like, man, I'm, I'm so happy for you that the Lord's blessed you. That's if you're not jealous. If you are jealous, it's like, well, yeah, why didn't I get that? You know, why didn't God do that for me? So I think they were truly joyful. How can you know if you're harboring jealousy, pride, or competition? When the Lord blesses someone with success, somebody that you know, or they receive recognition that maybe you think, you know, hey, it would have been cool if I had got it, but no, they got recognized. Or they receive some sort of material blessing. The Lord just blesses them some way financially or physically or materially or something. If you can say, praise God, I am so glad for you, that's a good way to know if you're not harboring jealousy. If you're, like, if you're struggling with it, you might need to check your heart. Just saying. So what did they do? Verse 20, going back to verse 20. And they said to him, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. So there were myriads of Jews. I don't know how many a myriad is. I'm guessing lots of people. There were many Jews who have believed, so they're Christians, but they were also identified as being zealous for the law, the law of Moses. Like what Bruce Barton wrote. Kind of gives us a little bit of a background. He says, Everything was not going smoothly in the church at Jerusalem, however. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus described this time period, which was approximately 56 or 57 AD, as being filled with political unrest and strong Jewish nationalism. There were several uprisings by Jews against their Roman leaders, all of which had been brutally put down by Felix, the Roman procurator. 
This caused even more anger from the Jews and intensified their hatred for Gentiles. Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, entered the city with news of vast Gentile conversions. So there's some people that weren't too, too thrilled about it. The Jews who believed, who were zealous for the law, you know, we were told in Acts that there was uh, quite a few priests that came to faith in the Lord between that time, you know, after Pentecost and the time we're talking now, which is approximately about 20 years later. Uh, also probably Pharisees and scribes. So these people that, like Paul, were raised in, you know, the, the traditions and they were, they were, you know, very zealous for the traditions and now they're saved. And, you know, you look at Paul and Paul said, man, all of that stuff, it's like nothing for me to gain Christ, you know. But not everybody had that same opinion. There were people that stuck to their legalism there. It says, they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. It says they have been informed. Now that's a New King James Version. They've been informed. The word is catechal. Have, you ever, have anyone here been to catechism? It's where that word comes from. Catechism is where they, they basically are instructing you in the doctrines of the church, basically. Um, I didn't grow up Catholic, but the church that I attended, they had catechism. I went to a catechism when I was a kid. I still remember that. The word catechal, it comes from two words. First, the word is down, and the other is echo. And what it really means is it echoed down. It, it, it was reverberated. And so here these people are sharing these things. They're, they're, they're spreading rumors, basically. They're gossiping about Paul, and they're wrong. What were the rumors? Paul was teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. Paul was teaching the Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul was teaching the Jews not to walk according to the customs of Judaism. Well, the truth is, Paul never told anyone to forsake Moses. We're not talking about Moses the man, but when they talk about forsaking Moses, that's the law. It's referring to the law. Paul wasn't saying you need to forsake the law. He never said that. Paul did teach that Jews and Gentiles alike can't be saved by the law of Moses. You can't be saved by the law. The law was just a tutor to bring people to Christ. That's what Paul taught. That's the reality of what Paul taught. The other rumor, Paul never told Jews not to circumcise their children. In fact, and we read about it earlier, Paul had Timothy, sac uh, not sacrifice, Paul and Timothy circumcised. It probably felt like a sacrifice for Timothy, but <laughs> Paul had Timothy circumcised. You know, his mother was Jewish, his father was Gentile or Greek, and so, you know, as they start ministering, they're like, you know, you're, you're not, you'll be able to minister to the Gentiles, but the Jews aren't going to receive you because you're not circumcised. And so Paul said, you better get circumcised. That way you won't be a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. So that rumor, that accusation was not true. Paul did teach that circumcision can't save anybody and that God was looking at the circumcision of the heart. You know what's the interesting thing about that? God even said that in the Old Testament when he gave the, when he gave the laws concerning circumcision. He said that circumcise your hearts. That, that, was the whole, that was God's purpose. He never taught the Jewish believers not to circumcise their children. 
Regarding the customs of Judaism, like for example, observing the Sabbath or eating meat sacrificed to idols or anything like that, listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 6. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives th God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives God thanks. So, you know, if they had just read Paul's letter to the Romans or Paul's letter to the Galatians, a lot of those rumors would have been dispelled. The rumors were completely false. They were meant to discredit Paul's ministry. Warren Wiersbe said this, It has well been said that though a rumor doesn't have a leg to stand on, it travels mighty fast. And that's so true. You know, it's interesting. I'll just share this with you. I, I uh, well, I don't know. I guess it was probably maybe, maybe a month ago or so. I got a phone call from a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor here in Minnesota, brother of the Lord. And he called me and he said, hey, can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, uh, there was somebody who attended our church and uh, they're, I didn't remember if you said it was friends or related to or, or maybe they were from this church here. And uh, he said, uh, they said that you told people don't go to the Jesus Revolution movie. I said, really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember that, you know. And uh, we talked for a while and stuff. It's interesting. It's like, where did that come from? But somebody, somebody said that. So this guy's like, that just doesn't seem like you. And so he called me. I said, no, it's not me. <laughs> I didn't. Anyways, it's interesting how rumors can spread. Now, it would appear, as you're reading this, it would appear that James and the elders didn't believe the rumors. But many of the believers that were zealous for the law in Jerusalem did. It kind of it tickled their ears, in a sense. So here's their solution, the elders and James, verse 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering be made for each one of them. So these guys, the elders and James, they have this, they have this idea. We've got these guys that are, there's four guys, maybe they couldn't afford to pay for their own haircut or whatever. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to, uh, they're fulfilling their, their Nazarite vow, which is what we believe it is, a Nazarite vow. And uh, so why don't you put to rest the rumors by paying for it, showing that you still observe the, the, the laws, basically, or the customs. And they're hoping that that would put to rest the rumors. I mentioned that that vow, which, I mean, it doesn't say it, but it seems to be the vow of a Nazarite. 
And that is listed uh, in Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to go to that, but if you ever want to find out about that. By the way, a man or a woman could take the vow of the, ne- of the Nazarite. What it was, it, it was to separate yourself to the Lord. And part of that vow would be that you would eat or drink nothing from the fruit of the vine. So no wine, uh, no raisins. You couldn't cook with grapeseed oil. Uh, you know, if, if vinegar back in those days, I guess, was made from grapes, so you couldn't have vinegar, no jams or jelly. Craisins are okay, I guess, but they didn't, there was no, that weird craisins, where'd that come from? Anyways, um, so you didn't eat anything from the fruit of the vine. Uh, you also didn't shave or cut your hair during the vow. And then you also stayed away. You weren't defiled by a dead body. So if, like, somebody died in your house, you, you know, that would probably mess up your vow, I guess. Uh, mess up your day, too, anyway. <laughs> well, at the end of the vow, then you would go to the temple. You would offer sacrifices. You'd cut your hair, and your hair would be offered on the altar to the Lord. And the Nazarite vow, it was a voluntary thing. It would be taken either to show thankfulness for past blessings or you're just wanting to tell the, show the Lord how much you're devoting yourself to him. It was just something that wasn't required, but if you wanted to do this, this is how you do it. It was completely voluntary, with the exception of Samson. Samson was raised to be a Nazarite, if you remember that story. Anyways. And so they say, take these four guys and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So Paul had been spending time with the Gentiles, being up, in, you know, up uh, away from Jerusalem. And so for Paul to enter the temple, he would also have to ceremonially be cleansed himself after having spent time with, among the Gentiles, which he did. And at the end of the seven days, Paul paid for the expenses of the haircuts and for the expenses of the sacrifice. Now, this wasn't Paul's idea. Paul didn't say, well, here, this is how, we'll, this is how we'll, we'll solve it. This was the elders' ideas in James. It wasn't Paul's idea, but Paul consented. And you know, it's interesting. If you look at Paul's life and his writings, man, it just, it just that's Paul. That's who Paul was, the Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet, listen to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And then later on he says this, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You know what we see in Paul's character? Grace. Lots of grace. Flexibility. And also love. That's what we see on Paul's part. That's what we see in his character. But what we see in those zealous believers, those ones that were still clinging to the law of Moses, it showed legalism. It showed judgmentalism. It showed inflexibility on their part. In fact, the writer to the letter is going to write, There's one of the apostles is, writes this, I think it was Paul, but people can disagree. The letter to the Hebrews was written to the church in Jerusalem basically to show them that the legalism in Christ isn't going to benefit you. 
in any way that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and that all those things of the old covenant were just copies and shadows of things to come, of the, of the heavenly things which are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke gives us a little commentary there in verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So apparently these accusers, you know, they were Judaizers, they were called. They would follow Paul around everywhere and trying to discredit him. And they were probably, they might have been from Ephesus because they recognized Trophimus. Say, hey, there's a Gentile. And so they made this false accusation against Paul. This would have been the, the Judaizers, or it probably wasn't believers. It was probably these Jews that were following, trying to, trying to uh, discredit Paul. But the problem was the believers who were zealous for the law, they were all too ready to accept the false accusation as truth. Because why? Because they had already entertained the rumors. Verse 21, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Allison Trites and William Larkin give us a little bit of a background. It says, this is not hyperbole. For Josephus consistently attests to the vol uh, volatility of the great crowds at the pilgrimage feasts, where a perceived slight against the ancestral customs could quickly generate a riot. That's just the way they were in that day and age, man. Anything that was a slight against Judaism, man, it caught, got them in an uproar. Josephus and others write that there was a wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the courts of the areas of the temple. And no Gentile, they could go into the court of the Gentiles, but man, they couldn't go beyond that wall. And on that wall there was a sign, and it's quoted here, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You... You cross that, you get, you are in there, man. You're a Gentile, man. You're dead. And the thing is, the Romans allowed the Jews within that within that context. They allowed them to to kill somebody if they violated that uh, that that rule or that law. So here's this rumor: Paul has allowed this Gentile in beyond that room into the into the man. The temple's defiled, and so they shut the doors so that nobody could go in there at that point because it had been supposedly defiled by Trophimus. Verse 21, excuse me, verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and they saw the and when they saw, this is the Jewish people, when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. What a guy, man. Either you love him or you hate him, right? Paul, he'd go some places and there'd be many people coming to faith in Christ. He'd go to other places and there'd be many people that want to kill him. You know, there'd be a riot. Either it'd be a riot or a revival wherever, wherever Paul went. That Antonio fortress or garrison ha uh, housed at least 
a, a thousand soldiers. It doesn't mean that all a thousand of them came down there, but it was right next to the temple, as you can kind of see on the, di on the picture up there. And so they basically just went down the steps into the temple from their garrison there. Verse 33. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people following after crying out, Away with him! You know, you think about that. That doesn't sound familiar, right? They were saying the same thing to Jesus. Away with him, crucify him. Here now they're saying the same thing to Paul. Verse 37. Then Paul was about to be, uh, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Verse 39, but Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, to be continued. <laughs> Don't you hate that? <laughs> Those shows, you know, you get all engrossed in the shows and then you get that little, that little thing, to be continued. Um, you know, think about Paul. And, and next week we will get into chapter 22, what Paul says. But think about Paul at this point. He's been told, don't go to Jerusalem, chains and tribulation are awaiting you. He's been warned. People say, Paul, that means God doesn't want you to go. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm counting the cost and I'm going to go. Paul gets there, he's beaten severely. I mean, they want to kill him. He's finally chained, like the prophecy, it was, it was all true. Can you imagine what Paul's probably thinking at this point? This is why God has me here. I'm going to share the gospel with thousands of Jewish people that are trying to kill me. I'm going to share the gospel. This is what God has me here for. Man, lots of people are going to get saved today. I can imagine that's what's going through Paul's head at that point. But that's not what happened, as we'll find out later on. Paul is probably hoping and expecting that, but that wasn't what happened. And when we get to chapter 23, um, you know, Paul, I don't know if Paul felt like that was a failure or whatever happened. But in chapter 23, the Lord is going to stand by Paul and say this, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem so you must also bear witness at Rome. But God, God had a plan in all of that, even in what happened to Paul that morning or that day. Now I'm going to go back to these two people, Allison Trites and William Larkin. It's in a commentary. I forgot the name of the title, but I got their names anyways. But they write this, and I think this is significant. Here we have the last major spiritual and geographical turning point in Acts. Never again would Paul return to Jerusalem for worship or witness. By shutting out the messenger and the message of salvation, Paul's opponents had sealed the city's doom. In permitting its ethnic pride to, pre to prevent it from fulfilling its divinely intended mission as a light to the Gentiles. 
The Jews not only rejected their place in the true people of God, but robbed the temple of the universal glory God planned for it as a house of prayer for all nations. So spiritually, this was a turning point is regarding the church in Jerusalem anyways. You know, when I reflected on this chapter, at least the second part of this chapter, this is a sad commentary on the church of Jerusalem at that time. You know what's sad about it? Paul, wasn't, Paul was rescued by the Romans. He was going to be killed. He was rescued by the... His, where's his brothers and sisters in the Lord? None of them stood up for Paul. And Paul's rescued by the Gentiles who don't even believe in the Lord. It's sad also that there was a division in the church between, remember the brethren who received Paul and his companions with joy? Man, they're so glad. The other ones, they were suspicious of Paul. They eyed Paul with suspicion based on the rumors that they had heard. It's also sad to me that rather than shut down the rumors outright, James and the elders just tried to pacify those who were believing the rumors. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to read too much into this, but why didn't they when they heard those why didn't they shut it down? They didn't. The reason why I say this is a sad commentary on the church in Jerusalem, I want to read a little bit to you from earlier in the book of Acts about the church in Jerusalem. About 20 years earlier, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Does that sound like the same church? It doesn't to me. Later on, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Man, this was a powerful church. This was a church that even the Gentiles were like, man, there's something, there's something special about these guys. That doesn't sound like the same church that we're reading about here in Acts chapter 21. And so I had to ask myself, what happened? What happened over the years? Well, we do know that the church of Jerusalem endured persecution. When Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, was stoned, right after that, in fact, Saul of Tarsus, who later, later became Paul the Apostle, was zealously trying to eradicate people of the way. That's what the church was called. People were, Christians were called at that time. And so there was persecution. But, you know, throughout history, from what I've ever read, Persecution typically strengthens and unites the body of Christ. You know, if we get some people out here protesting Calvary Chapel, Rochester, and it could happen someday soon, you never know, or the government says you guys can't meet anymore, or you know, or you've got people throwing rocks at the church because you know, they hate what we're saying, you know, we're hate mongers, or whatever, whatever, you know, that kind of persecution. You know what I think would happen? I think we'd all band together. I mean, we'd be praying for one another. We'd be like, man, you know, it, it would unite us. And I think it would strengthen us in our resolve, in our faith. So I don't think that's the reason. We also know that there was famine and resulting poverty among the church of Jerusalem, but that, to me that doesn't make sense either. That would be why the church changed so much. What happened? You know, we're not told, 
but I do think there's some clues in what we just read in chapter 21. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned there's poverty. There was a famine that was prophesied by Agabus. He was the guy we introduced to last, last week. And it actually happened in the days, and there was a, a certain time when it happened. So there was a famine that happened in Jerusalem. So everybody in Jerusalem suffered through this famine. But you see, the Christians were persecuted against and so for them, it was that much more worse, you know, because if you were a Jewish person in that day and age uh, and you were, you know, you were in good standing with the Pharisees, you know, you didn't, you didn't follow that Jesus stuff. Um, you could do trade and everything. You, you, could, you, you, were, you were accepted into the society. But if you were a member of the way, well, you couldn't go to synagogue anymore, right? You, you couldn't go to the temple anymore. You, there's just all these things that they would require of people. And, uh, and so... There was poverty. In Romans chapter 15, Paul wrote that letter, and he's talking about what's going to take place here in Jerusalem, what he was doing. Let me read this to you, Romans 15. It says, But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them in material things. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So Paul actually had a contribution for the church in Jerusalem when he came to Jerusalem, the one we just read. You don't read anywhere where there's like, thank you, Paul. Man, thanks for the gift, man. Tell those saints up in you know, Antioch and all these, man, tell them thank you. What a blessing. You, you don't read of that. And that makes me wonder, I wonder if they were even grateful for the financial gift. So I think one of the problems might have been unthankfulness. Maybe they even had a sense of entitlement. You know, that comes from pride within us, right? I deserve something. So I'm entitled to this. What should we be doing? Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. You know, and it's, it's cliche, but we should have an attitude of gratitude in everything. What else could possibly be the problem? Well, I think they had loss of focus. You see, there were many believers who were zealous for the law. And today, there are many believers, I'm talking born-again believers, who are zealous for all kinds of things. They might be zealous for legalism. They might be zealous for Calvinism or Arminianism or any of those isms. Wokeism, they might, be, they might be zealous for that. They might be zealous for leisure. I mean, think about this, and this is just a rhetorical question. What are you zealous for? And I bet you if I were to ask each one of you here in this room, you say, well, I'm zealous for the Lord. And praise God, I'm glad you are. But you know what? And I'm, I'm not judging, but whatever you're focused on, first of all, you view everything through the lens of whatever your focus is. Second thing, you talk about it. And third, you spend all your time and efforts on whatever it is you're zealous for. It's reflected in what you do. They lost their zeal for Jesus. You know, we can be zealous. You know, we can be even be zealous for good things. 
The church in Ephesus, man, they were zealous people. They were zealous saints. And they were zealous for good things. They had works. Man, they had programs for the Lord. They were doing things. They were ministering in their community. They labored. They were hardworking people. They had patience. They had discernment. Man, they could tell false teachings from it. Man, that, that's a false teacher. You know, they, they had discernment. They had all these good things. They were persevering in difficult times. Those were all good things. But Jesus said this to them in Revelation 2.4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. You see, we should be zealous for Jesus. If you want to be zealous for anything, be zealous for the Lord. And I think the church in Jerusalem lost that zeal. They were too focused on legalism, the law. Also, I think there was a judgmentalism or critical spirit there in the church in Jerusalem. Jesus said this, excuse me, Paul said this, Romans 14, 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Man, we, we can't be criticizing each other. We can't be judging each other. And I'm talking about not judging like, brother, you're, you know, I, I see you're walking in sin. I want to you know, pray for you or you know, I'm warning you or something. That's not that. Judging is condemning. is writing somebody off. That's what it's talking about. The church there, they were either spreading, or maybe they weren't spreading the rumors, or they were just listening to the rumors. And they were letting the rumors affect them. They were suspicious of Paul. Paul wrote this in Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. And then Paul also wrote this, in 1 Corinthians 13, and love thinks no evil, love believes all things. You might not be sp sp spreading rumors, but are you listening to them? Are you entertaining them? Because it'll affect how you view whoever's being rumored about or whatever, you know? And I think that was, in, that was obviously a, a situation there in the church in Jerusalem. You know, all of this boils down to, I think what Jesus said, well, self-centeredness, that's, I, I'm behind again. <laughs> Love does not seek its own. 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, I got ahead of myself. Sorry about that. Self-centeredness. They were expecting people to bend to their own scruples rather than extending grace to those. And, of course, Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love does not seek its own. In fact, you see that in Paul. You know, Paul's like, yeah, I'll pay for their, I'll pay for the haircuts. I'll do all that stuff. That's fine. He was willing to bend. He was willing to extend grace. But the other believers were like, no, you need to do this. You know, I'm not saying the elders and, and James, but those believers that were, you know, they had that expectation that, and that judgment on, on Paul. It's like, no, you, you, you better obey those things. I think all of it boils down to this. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, you might have thought, you know, I think, Pastor Don, I think you're kind of, you're really reading into this chapter, and I, you know, I don't see that I'm reading that, and, you know, that you're, you're entitled to that feeling of, you know, whatever. But you've got to admit, there's a difference between the Church of Jerusalem and the early part of Acts and what we're seeing today, what we read today. There's a difference. 
something happened. And you know, sometimes I think about our own lives, our own church, our own, our own walk with the Lord. If you're thinking about, think back to when you first gave your heart to the Lord. What was it like? What, was your, what were you zealous about then? How did you view other Christians at that point? How did you view the word of God? How did, how did you interact in church? Man, were you so on fire for the Lord and for the things of the, you know, just, you just wanted to be involved in all that stuff? How are you today? Has anything changed in your life or in your walk? I think it's just a good reminder for us to reflect where are we at today? And I think sometimes maybe we just need a course correction. And that course correction is to love the Lord God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our brothers as ourselves. And when we do that, I think then we'll have a powerful witness in this community when we love one another and when we're, when we're zealous for the Lord, for the things of the Lord. You know, the, I mean, you know, there's a lot of junk politically going on, and I, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more zealous about, you know, this is garbage what's happening. We need to do something. But I don't want that to become my focus. My focus is Jesus Christ. My focus is, I don't hate the people that are out here that are making all these dumb, not even dumb, evil laws and stuff. They're lost. They need a savior. And so, you know, let's, let's have that hard attitude. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.